Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse, and I'm Eric, and today we're reading short and deep, the Pet Shop by Nelson Bond. Uh, I know him better as Nelson S. Bond. Uh, I found him in a lot of the old, uh, uh, I want to say, amazing, but there's there's a number of magazines that he was published in. He's he's not super well known as a science fiction writer, but I was surprised to see him in Blue Book. Uh, uh, that is, this story was first published in uh, Blue Book, March 1950, which is a magazine um, w- once dubbed the King of the Pulps. Um, did you ever see Blue Book on the shelves? Because it ended in 1975, and I was only three years old. But <laughs> you might have seen it on the newsstand. It was it was pretty prominent. I don't remember seeing it on the on the newsstands. I, I don't doubt what you're saying, but um, when I was buying pulp magazines while I was still, uh, well, by, a kid, um, I was picking them up at the corner candy store and they were on spinners and I was looking for lurid covers on mm. things like uh, fantasy and science fiction or worlds of if mm-hmm. or and so on. Um, and Blue Book wasn't one of those. I guess uh, they didn't penetrate into Brooklyn. Yeah. But, I, but I have to ask, you know, mm-hmm. uh, I don't think of the pet shop as science fiction. No, it's not a science fiction story, I don't think, either, but um, it's it's definitely a fantasy story, I think, of some kind. Oh, yes. Um, and uh, Blue Book was, it, it was aimed at, um, it had many lives, in fact, over its, it had a 70, I think, a 70-year lifespan, started in ni- 1905 and went to 1975, and it had many sort of changes over the years. Uh, everybody who isn't familiar with blue book is probably familiar with red book. At least, um, red book is still around. I think it's still being published. I haven't seen one on the stands, but I haven't been near a stand in a while. Um, red book is sort of a fashion magazine, women's magazine. Blue book was aimed at both genders. There was also a green book, although it didn't last nearly as long as blue book or red book. Um, and, uh, in the night, 1950 is sort of, it's the height of its height, um, or maybe the end of its height. Um, yeah. it, it was it was a big magazine in the '30s. It had um, it had some really amazing content and very high end stuff for being a pulp. Um, it had Edgar Rice Burroughs not at the beginning, but in the middle of his career with some uh, Barsoom stories and novels. It had um, Sax Romer. It had Heinlein. It had uh, Willie Lee, uh, Philip Wiley's um, uh, famous and I think really good novel, uh, When Worlds Collide. Um, it's w- w- Wiley and, and Balmer. Um, that book was serialized in there. Um, so this was a, a very substantial magazine, and this is not a very substantial story. <laughs> but because it was such a substantial magazine and because um, – you know, it was one of those quality magazines. The illustrations in this are just amazing, and that's what attracted to me. And then I realized, oh, this Nelson Bond guy, that's probably Nelson S. Bond. I looked it up. It was. Um, that's how I know him. That's how he was published in most of the science fiction mags. Um, but he uh, he's not sort of an outstanding author in my mind, but uh, I just couldn't 
put down the images once I started looking at them. I'm like, wait a second, what's what's that? That's not a that's not a a pet. <laughs> So I do recommend everybody go uh, check out the PDF on this one and have a look at the beautiful color illustrations that uh, go throughout their story. It's not that long. It's five, six pages, something like that. It's I'm I like the illustrations a lot, too. I've got to say that I may as we come to discuss the story, I may wind up thinking trying to persuade you that it's better than I infer that you think it is. Uh, I don't know if it's a great story, but I think it's it's a subtle and good and useful story. I'd also point out that <clears throat> the blue book, the red book, the green book, mm-hmm. um, Andrew Lang published a wildly popular, wildly popular set of books beginning in 1889. The first one was called the Blue Fairy Book. Mm-hmm. And then came the Red Fairy Book, and then the Blue Poetry Book, and then the mm-hmm. Green Fairy Book, and, and so on. Uh, there was a Yellow Fairy Book. I mean, he, for a period of a decade, uh, maybe a bit more, he kept coming up with these books, which were basically retellings of fairy tales that were you know, already out in the world ever since the Grimm brothers had made a collection in the second decade of the 19th century, and they were translated very quickly. Um, Lang then came up with this new thing. And I can't help but wonder if the uh, the marketing idea behind the Red Book, the Blue mm-hmm. Book, and so on, came from this. I, and I point that out because fairy story is a lot of what's behind the pet shop, mm-hmm. I think. Um, fairy stories, unlike science fiction, have arbitrary rules. Uh, for example, you can read a, a fairy story in which uh, the animals talk, but then it turns out that uh, the animals will sacrifice a horse. I mean, I'm thinking of a particular uh, fairy tale in which, you know, the the ant king talks and we know that animals can talk and he demands a sacrifice. They kill the horse. The horse can't talk. Right. The ant king is talking to a human. They just kill the horse. How is it that ants can talk, but horses can't? (laughs) The answer is it's a fairy story. You get to make up pretty arbitrary rules. And that's Part of what's going on in this story, um, the rules are arbitrary. Can I give a precy of it? Please do. Thank you. So it begins uh, with a fellow being attracted to a pet shop. And he walks in and uh, and meets the pet shop owner. Uh, How he gets in, I think, is very well written. Pardon me. The faded sign read John S. Beifrons Pets. I'm trying to give it a German pronunciation because it looks like a German word. B-E-I-F-R-O-H-N-S. Um, <clears throat> by means at or near. Uh, how's by you um, in German. And Franz looks an awful lot like Frauen, which means happiness. And, you know, let's go get a pet. So John S. Beifrons Pets. <clears throat> Keith Prentice paused and stared at it and frowned, frowned and frowns. His lease said that he couldn't keep a pet, which only served to make Keith the more determined. It was his fancy to own one. He had the means to buy one. 
and he was not the sort to submit meekly to dictation. And in a world where dogs are the most popular of pets, Prentice meant to have one for his own. So we've got a guy who's capable. He does not want to bow to authority. He is out for ownership, which is interesting because he has a lease. Mm -hmm. He doesn't own where he lives, but he's acting as if he is master of the world. And he wants to have a pet, meaning he wants to own some other being. This turns out, I think, to be a, a pregnant beginning for a story in which Prentice walks in and meets a, a strange, diffident old man, a pet owner, a pet store owner. And their conversation gets them deeper and deeper into what Prentice might really want which turns out to be not just a dog because everybody's got a dog. He wants a very special dog. And then when he's offered the, the possibility of something even more special than a dog, he follows the pet store owner deeper into this gloomy, long, in fact, astonishingly long tunnel-shaped store. And as they get deeper and deeper in, they see more and more astonishing things in the cages. And at a certain point, the pet owner says, now, if you want, you can turn back now. But beyond this point, you can go only forward. Now, Prentice knows that as he's going forward, things are getting more strange and his curiosity is piqued. And he clearly wants to own something um, from this store. So he says, well, I'll go forward, thinking that he, in fact, can turn around at any time. But it transpires that he cannot. Now, along the way, the pet store owner lets slip a number of things, words, phrases that suggest a kind of mirroring world. Mm -hmm. Uh, You cannot always tell the purchaser from the purchased, he says early on. And what turns out to be the case as Prentice gets trapped in this other end of the tunnel between the worlds is that he, who was entering as a purchaser, becomes someone caged and is in a world in which um, someone can come in and maybe buy him. The purchased can become the purchaser. It ends, the faded sign read, Janice Bifrons, pets. Not John S. Bifrons, but Janice, the 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 uh, the god of passages yeah uh, the roman god of pass uh, passageways exactly. mm-hmm. with two faces by franz right so it's he's got two faces by franz grill kirkind paused and stared at it at the sign and frowned his lease said that he couldn't keep a pet which only served to make grill the more determined It was his fancy to own one. He had the means to buy one, and he was not the sort to submit meekly to dictation. And in a world where men are the most popular of pets, Kierkind meant to have one for his own. A cobalt sun beamed brightly on the gray and dingy door as Kierkind turned and with abrupt decision trotted into the pet shop. It's an exact mirror, uh, except it's a twisted funhouse mirror of the opening two paragraphs. Exactly, and um, it's uh, the the sun in our opening is crimson. It's cobalt here, and he trots in, making me think he's 
he's four footed. <laughs> exactly. He's a centaur or something. Yeah. <laughs> and so what we have here is a story, I think. Um, well, I, I won't go into it thematically, but I think it's clear that the whole long atmospheric buildup, the incremental description of one strange beast after another, and each of these beasts turns out to be, I mean, first it's a dog, and then it's then it's a werewolf, and then it's a, a unicorn, and then we get centaurs and Cerberus and uh, Osiris, and we get just all sorts of things. And as Prentice says, well, these things can't exist. The Bifron says, oh, you know, imagination is not nearly as powerful as you humans like to think it is. These things really are there. And uh, I can get them because I have an outlet for them. And the outlet of human imagination is the world of uh, Kierkind. And the outlet of Kierkind's world is ours. Um, so there's this wonderful mirroring going on. Mm -hmm. But I think there's a lot more, so I will stop and give you a chance to start talking about the story if we agree more or less on the plot. I think that's exactly right. Uh, when I started reading it, I I was very, um, I was like, oh, it's very atmospheric. Uh, I wonder where this is going. Um, and now, in looking back at it, it's like, it's like, oh yeah, it was very well laid out and very obvious. When I said this is not a substantial story, what I mean to say is, is basically this is, um, I would say. A, I would classify it as like a Twilight Zone episode. <laughs> it's it's very much uh, showing us something that makes us better at understanding the human condition and maybe uh, does the job of what I, I think a lot of people think the, the reason you should read uh, fiction is not because it's entertainment, but uh, it's moral development. And I'm, I think that that is a good chunk of why I like reading is because it expands my understanding of uh, other creatures and the minds of others. And uh, so if, the, if you see this as a, a, a story that expands your possibilities of empathy, like whenever you read an H.G. Wells story, um, he has these monstrous characters doing monstrous things, you should see it as a re you know rather than actions to follow <laughs> actions to respond to in a negative way the invisible man is not a is not the hero uh he is the villain of the piece and uh so uh, i didn't see our our protagonist who wants a pet at the beginning of the story as a monster but uh the indications that as you pointed out the lease versus the ownership um, all these caged animals. Um, we think about how people today are, if they want to get a pet, they want to have a, a rescue animal, an animal that was abandoned and abandoned. We, we, we think of pet ownership today rather than the fifties, perhaps as adoption rather than, um, uh, ownership, um, whatever the law says. Um, and yet I knew right from the beginning, there was something tricky about this guy, the, this Bifrons guy. Because uh, his name was so unusual, and it twigged to me pretty early that this is something. So I, I looked it up pretty much right away, and uh, I didn't get the Janus Bifrons. I got the uh, sort of the derivative Bifrons, who is a demon. Um, I don't know if you know about this guy, but this is there's a very slight Wikipedia entry on him, um, uh, citing. Uh, 
the Dictionnaire Infernal, which is an 1863 book. Um, and it says, in demonology, Bifrons is a demon, Earl of Hell, with 60 legions of demons, 60, according to the other authors, under his command. He teaches science and arts, the virtues of gems and woods, herbs, and changes of cha changes corpses from the original grave into other places, sometimes putting magic lights on the graves to appear like candles. So this doesn't sound like exactly our guy, and yet uh, his name comes from the Roman god Janus Bifrons. Um, and then I noticed just just now um, that my instinct to not trust this guy it was put right into the art. If you look at the uh, illustrations of this pet shop owner, <laughs> he has he's bald, but he has a couple of uh, strands of hair sticking up on either side of his head. Very subtle, very very subtle. But yeah, they're de little tiny demon horns. <laughs> yep. Isn't In every cool? show. Yeah. Every shows them. Yeah, and it's show. not a uh, it's not a um, only one one trick that this author's pulling off, or the artist, in fact. Um, so, yeah, when I say this is an insubstantial, uh, not a substantial story, what I mean to say is that I think I can understand um, what it's doing incredibly well once I twig to that ending right once i start reading the ending is oh i get it this is a this is a doorway this is a this is a, this is a great idea because what he did is he paired up bond did i think he paired up um our natural ignorance of where pet shops get their stock you know if you're not in the pet shop business you don't know where the stock comes from in the same way that you don't know where the stock comes from the grocery store. You, you just know it comes on trucks. You don't know where it comes from. Um, and yet all these exotic creatures, all these different kinds of dogs, he, and he wants a dog. Um, and by the way, the last dog listed is a griffin, <laughs> which is a kind of dog, but also uh, sort of a prelude to the kinds of things you'll see beyond the curtain. Um right. And so, uh, yeah, it's it, it's. I think it's it's both subtle in that it it does its job very effectively to suck you in, uh, and we become Keith Prentice. Ha ha ha! I like his name. <laughs> um, and also uh, to see that this isn't unique to to mankind. Um, so it has that kind of Twilight Zone esque uh, uh, story turn where. Uh, the people who um, think uh, think it's cool to uh, go visit the zoo end up uh, zoo animals on an alien world, right? There are a lot of stories by Julio Cortazar, um, or I guess Cortazar is how he would pronounce it since he's Latin American, um, that do exactly that. One famous one is Ajolotl, um, in which someone is, goes to the zoo and sees an axolotl, um, in its aquarium and he looks at it and he sort of locks eyes with it and he tries to understand the life of the axolotl and uh, and what it must be like to be an axolotl inside an aquarium looking out at people and at the end of the story he's the axolotl mm. um, it's a it's a marvelous story um, Cortazar has written a number of uh, stories with this sort of interpenetration of worlds mm -hmm. but but I think that uh, 
that here, this is not as as shocking a story in one sense um, as, the, as some of Cortázar's, but I think that Cortázar is not as clear as Bond about what this means. Now, what I'd like to point out is that capitalism leads to a situation in which, um, well, here's the line, uh, the purchaser, the purchased, the line between is but a passageway. This is what Bifron says to Prentice early on. It's the very first page of the story. I beg your pardon, said Prentice. That's another, that is clever. It slows us down to ask us to think about what this means. Mm-hmm. Nothing. I am an old man and I fear I talk too much. Now let me see. An uncommon breed, you said. If you will follow me, dot, 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 and then comes a paragraph, or I should say dash, comes a paragraph break. The author is right up front getting us to focus on this assertion which almost seems to have slipped out accidentally that someone old and in true possession of all of these things that are coveted, he knows that the purchaser and the purchase, the line between is but a passageway. Now, in the story, we see the passage, but I'd, I'd like to point out in 1966, Jacques Ellul comes up with a book that's uh, translated into English, I think, as The Technological Man. And basically what he points out is that while Mussolini may have made the trains run on time, trains make us run on time. Mm-hmm. Nobody ever had a heart attack racing for the 815 from Greenwich, Connecticut to get into Midtown Manhattan before there were 815s from Greenwich, Connecticut. Nobody ever lined up perfectly along the edge of a platform to get onto a train until there were platforms to get onto trains. Nobody ever became the kind of cog in the machinery that we see in those famous uh, images from Charlie Chaplin's modern times before there were punch clocks, time clocks for people to punch in and punch out. The purchaser and the purchase, the line in between, what we possess begins to possess us. There are many, uh, Emerson's uh, wonderful line, things are in the saddle and ride mankind. Many, many people have argued that One of the reasons not to have slaves is because to have slaves is to become enslaved Mm. by the system of slavery. What we have here in this line, so clear, so upfront and dominating all of what happens in the story, the purchaser, the purchase, the line between is but a passageway. So that opening where we see Prentice, he's got a lease. But he doesn't care about someone else who owns his place of residence because he has the means to own something else in turn. Mm -hmm. And curiosity is uh, is what drives him, as we imagine will drive the character who comes in that short mirror image at the end. But curiosity itself is not inherently a bad thing. What's bad is this sense of entitlement. I've got the money. I want to do it and I can do it, even though he's living in someone else's world. He's in someone else's world when he's in the pet shop and he's in someone else's building when he is at home because someone else owns it. He has only a lease. Now, 
as I say, this is a fairy tale. Why is it that there is a certain point beyond which Prentice could turn back, but if he goes further, he cannot? Well, metaphorically, it's got to do with balancing your sense of assuaging your curiosity um, through supporting your, your, because your entitlement thinks you have the right to do it um, or not. But I think that we see this as a fairy tale rule. It just exists. For instance, in many, many vampire stories, the vampire can't get into your house unless you invite him in. Mm-hmm. Right. So why is it that why is that? You know, why is that? Because it's a fairy tale and that's the rule. Like, you know, some animals can talk and some can't. And that's what's going on here. The fact that this world is bigger than we are. And this story is a cautionary tale, not about not going into a pet store, but about thinking that just because you've got money and you want to do something, you can't turn the world into something else the world can turn you into something else. Mm-hmm. I, I was just thinking about Rumpelstiltskin, you know, if you know his name. Yeah. That, that's the, the escape. And uh, what's funny is, uh, this is what I teach my students, you know, vocabulary is what <laughs> what uh, will keep you uh, alive and safe in this world. Because if you understand, <laughs> if you understand what things mean you can't be controlled by those words they don't dominate you in the in the way that they will if you know you go to the doctor and he tells you um, you have a subdural hematoma and you don't know what that is you're just afraid um but uh, i'd be surprised if you could even understand what the doctor is saying if you have a subdural hematoma because that's a bleeding on the brain right so it's all valuable and when we see the sign for John S. Bifrons's pet shop. We don't recognize him for who he is. Uh, but when we see his sign um, in another world, and it's Janus Bifrons's pets, um, well, I know who Janus is, but I bet Grill's, uh, Grill's uh, Kierkind has no idea <laughs> who Janus Bifrons is. Exactly. Yeah. And so that, uh, that transference back and forth, um, the fact that like, I, I knew about Janus and usually he's tied to the month of January, although maybe it's actually Juno for January. In any case, I knew a little bit about him and he's this two faced guy. Um, but he also is the, the God of the passage passageways and, um, the beginner and the ender. And uh, this other curious fact that I think is so cool that I, I had I known or at some point I had forgotten um, that Janus is the keeper of the keys. He has the keys to all doors. And what happens right at the end of this story? And I, I think the my admiration for this story is quite high for what it is. I think it is a very slight story and the kind of story that you would read and enjoy. If you were doing a, a podcast on, you would read, enjoy, and basically forget, or at least forget in the sense that you don't dwell upon it in a in in a way that you would a more mysterious story. Um, and the reason you would do that is because it it's doing what it's it's designed to do very very effectively, and there aren't a lot of hanging threads that need to be picked up 
um, because it, I, I think it's just masterfully done. So I want to read the the closing. You read um, the opening, and uh, I think I read the the very ending, but right right at the point where uh, on the last page of the story, and and the art is coming to a crescendo with all these um, great images of all the creatures in cages are now freed. In fact, um, it looks uh, it goes like this, and then he stopped shocked into silence because behind him his aged guide was quietly fastening the metal gate through which he had entered the last enclosure there came the grate of steel on steel as a key turned in the lock then slowly deliberately and with a curious sort of kindness the old man bent and placed two earthen bowls within the cage wherein keith prentice uh, stood one of the bowls held water and one food. With a scream that was less fear than rage, Keith hurled himself on the unyielding bars. He roared, he howled, he swore to no avail. The old man walked away towards the strangely unearthly blue light. Um, and of course, I didn't realize that at this point, but that blue light is probably caused by the cobalt sun. Um, Keith's fury was, was a dreadful spectacle. His cries, his threats roused all his fellow beasts. Within the shop, for quite some little while, there was the din which frequently occurs when some newcomer takes poorly to confinement. And I just think that's wonderful that he has uh, captured the the sort of curious ignorance and unconscious, um, passive, um, acceptance of, of the system and become subject to it now, right? Where you go into a, a pet shop and you buy a animal that's come from nowhere, you know, uh, it's in a cage. It wants not to be in that cage. It doesn't understand why it's there. <laughs> um, I don't think, um, I don't think that Keith Prentice will understand why he's there until he's taken home by some <laughs> more, uh, it's almost like you think about who is, why Janus Bifrons is doing this. He's, it's almost like he's trying to make people better pet owners or maybe not even pet owners, better pet adopters, right? He's saying, look, I'm not, I'm not trying to hurt you, but you're kind of dangerous. And uh, when you get to your new home, maybe <laughs> you'll be better off. Um, so I, I, it, it seems to me that you could almost say that the pet shop is real, but the only people who uh, buy uh, pets from this pet shop are, are the people or who adopt pets from this pet shops are people who are doing it for the right reasons for the right attitude which is interesting um i don't know if it can go beyond that i'm sure today somebody's idea the pet idea of pet ownership at all but uh, i think that this, that's the direction this is pointing in and it's it's very successful i think in what it's doing and it's a nice read too which also helps it's it's the, the sentences are lovely the images are uh mellifluously put forth mm. and are visually vivid I, I i like reading the story a lot i've read it three times now 
but I would say that it does not suggest to me that the devil is making people into better pet owners. I think the, the devil is in a story that we get to read that perhaps may make us less prideful in ownership per se, yeah. especially over things that are sentient. Um, but whether or not we have the need or right to extend that, because after all, God said that we had the right to keep and uh, the Garden of Eden to keep it and to dress it. Um, so the devil wants something else. Is it possible that the devil is making us better than we are having mm. from God's grace? I think the story wants us to think that these issues, whatever they may be, are not just in the Christian Bible, because we get pieces of one mythology after another. Mm -hmm. Just to say, for the entire humanity, there's always more to say. Thanks very much for listening. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sffaudio.